Welcome to episode 109 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is September 1st, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Mike Omer. Mike has been a journalist, game developer, CEO of a gaming company, and has really hit his stride as a mystery thriller writer with two series, The Glenmore Park Mysteries, which introduces Zoe Bentley, and the Zoe Bentley series. Mike is working on a new series with a female hostage negotiator as his lead protagonist. We've talked about craft and how important editors are to the process of crafting a great book. It's my pleasure to welcome Mike Omer to the show. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own crime thriller with a mystery twist, Odessa on the Delaware. A Russian gang enforcer is on a murderous rampage to take over the entire Philadelphia mob scene. A homeless vet doesn't know that he has the proof or that he's next on the list. The stakes are high for this deadly cat and mouse game set on the bleak Philly waterfront of years gone by. FBI agent Marsha O'Shea, a gunslinger from the Miami cartel days, is back in her hometown, quietly finishing out her career, but now is drawn into this case with a secret pushing her doggedly to follow the clues, only to uncover a greater secret that may get her killed in the final showdown. You can buy Odessa from your favorite online retailer. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how's the weather out there in Israel today? Like was yesterday and the week before that and the week before that, August, Israel is like crazy hot. <laughs> so insanely hot. Okay. And is there humidity too? Yeah, yeah. It's hot and humid. Like imagine the, the very difficult weather. Thank God for air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Here in uh, southwestern Connecticut, of course, my listeners know that I cursed about our very wet and cold and damp spring. And then, of course, Mother Nature came back and and hit me over the head with a scalding hot summer. So this week for us, too, has been high humidity and and high heat, too, as well. And for southern New England, it's just not very pleasant, to be honest with you. But anyway, and I also am grateful for air conditioning. Today, as we record this, is, yes, it would be nice if I had the date with me, August 14th. And I just wanted to say thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. We had met briefly at Bauschikon in Dallas in 2019. Uh, you were signing books at a table and were nice enough to uh, provide me with a uh, signed copy of In the Darkness. And I worked through my book list. And when I read it, 
I said, well, I've got to have Mike on the podcast. And then I went out and purchased a copy of A Killer's Mind. And I'm sure that uh, Thicker Than Blood will be next. And then so will the entire Glenmore Park series. But I digress. I, I found the writing to be really fresh, really original. I liked it a lot. The pacing of the chapters really moved quickly in, in the darkness. And I'm, I'm seeing the same thing with Killer's Mind. And I just wanted to say that I really enjoy it. So tell me, how did you get started? Thank you. I'm so glad. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. It's not often I get a chance to gush at my guests. but And and I'm an avid reader of crime fiction. So when I'm sitting there at 1.30 in the morning, and because I have to get to that next chapter, I know that I've got a good book in my hands. So I just want to tell you, I've had a couple sleepless nights thanks to you, Mike. So I appreciate that. (laughs) So tell me, how did you get started? So I was 16 when I wrote my first book. It was a sort of humor fantasy thing. It started off as as like a just to see if I can thing. But then I wondered what would happen if I tried to publish it. And I actually did manage to publish it. It was a huge surprise. It was a total flop, but commercially, but that was like my first publishing experience. I was 17, I think, when I came out. And then I published another book after that. I took a long break. And then around my 30s, I started writing and trying to publish again. Okay. And it's interesting that you had that journey. And I got to say that in both In the Darkness and A Killer's Mind, you really take the time to acknowledge the people that have helped you with your writing. I mean, it's, this is not... It's not like these these books came down off the mountain on stone tablets. I mean, let's face it. Oh, they really didn't. No, and and neither is it with most writers. And anyone that tells you any different is, well, they're spinning some fiction. But in our cases, I mean, I I see that you've had a chance to hone your craft with the help of other people and and some good people there. I recognize some names. And, And you could talk about that later. But so now you're in your 30s. What had you think that you wanted to get back into writing again, and why did you want to pursue it? And this time, what was the game plan? So I was I was between jobs, and I was kind of searching for myself. I was just I just finished. I I started a startup, a game company, and it crashed. and And I was looking for something to do before I go back to uh, working. And I had this idea of this book I really wanted to write. And I said, well, why don't I try to write it before I start working again? In Israel, you don't write to make money because the crowd is really small. You can't actually make a living just by writing. So it was never, I never figured, okay, I'll write this book and then I'll sell it and I'll start living as a writer. That wasn't the concept. I just thought it would be a, like a nice thing to, to do before I uh, start working again. But after I wrote it, I found out that some authors are self-publishing in English. And I read a blog by an author who made it sound like it's a viable way to actually make a living in the U.S. market and in the U.K. And I figured I might as well try it. Who was that author, may I ask? Yeah, it's, his name is Conrath. J.A. Conrath. He has this uh, really exciting blog about self-publishing, and uh, and he pretty much that blog changed my life because I read it. I got so excited by the possibility that I never imagined before that I could actually make a living by writing, 
And that's when I decided that I want to try it. I want to actually make a living out of writing. I, I actually published a few books, like young adult books under a different pen names. They didn't work out so well. And then I decided to try publishing this uh, mystery thriller books. Okay. And well, for... let's just go back to J.A. Conrath for a second, because he was very instrumental for me as well. Back in when I got the writing bug, and this was after a long, well, still, I still have a career as a private investigator, but I wanted to write. And I said, do I want to go traditionally published or I want to go independent? And at the time, looking at what was on the uh, internet, I came across basically Conrath's ma- manifesto or rage against, uh, or rage, <laughs> one or the other. But this was a guy that was battle tested both by making a gazillion literary queries and just getting the bejesus, and that's, I know it's a colloquial term, just getting uh, snot kicked out of him. And he saw that he could write, and he found that independent publishing was uh, for him. And it, it helped me with my decision as well. So I just wanted to pass that on too as well, that he was, I guess you, I would call him my very first guru as writing. So how about that? We both share uh, J.A. Conrath and I think it's the the guide to independent publishing, and it's this like pulp fiction type of cover. It's really a good book. But anyway, back to your situation. I just I couldn't let that pass though. Yeah, his his instrumental. I just remember I was working at the time when I found his blog, and my coworker who was working in the same office looked at me after I I've been reading this blog for a whole day or two, and he said, "I've never seen you so excited in." like ever. I was like, my eyes were sparking and I was like super excited. Yeah, it's something else. It was a huge discovery. Absolutely. And uh, I owe a lot to him as well. Someday if I ever get to meet him, I'll I'll buy him a drink. Because doesn't he have a whole series about drink names, I think? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Anyhow, so, so tell me, you start to think about a genre and you started thinking about what you wanted to write. You had a book idea in your head. Just take me down that path. So, like I said, the first books I wrote were like sort of young adult horror books, a bit like Arl Stein books, but that's not a really viable market. People don't like horror books, teenagers not more than others. There's a few established horror uh, authors that make that are really successful, but other than them, it's not a viable that and and these books pretty much crashed. And then I was seeing, I I love mystery and thriller. And I saw my friend publish a mystery series and doing really well. And I figured I could write this. I could do the same and decided to try it. And my first and my biggest crush on mystery was writing the Ed McBain books. The Precinct 87, yeah. I think it was? Exactly. Oh. The first mystery book I ever wrote, read, like the police procedural, was uh, Nocturne. And at the time, my dad gave it to me, and I didn't know why he was giving it to me. I, at the time, I preferred uh, science fiction and fantasy. And he said, you have to read this. And it waited for months until I got to it. And I was more reading it just to satisfy my dad. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how good it could be. Oh, Joseph Wamba? No. No, it was Nocturne. It's the like uh, one of the... It's one of the, the 
whole night stories. There, there's a couple of murders, Karela and and his uh, partner Mayor and all those. They're investigating a few murders. Um, just the writing and the characters blew me away. And when I started writing the Glenmore Park mysteries, I wanted to write something similar. And that's what I did. I created like a detective squad with a few detectives and they were investigating a few crimes at once. And those are the three first books I wrote as a mystery thriller writer. That's how I started out. And, and, they, went, and they were pretty successful when I published them. And at the time, and the one I had the most fun writing was the first one, which was about a serial killer. And I figured I want to write more about serial killers, which is how I I took the profiler character out of the first Glenmore Park book, which was uh, Zoe Bentley, who was very popular among my readers and just gave her own series, the Zoe, nice. Zoe Bentley series. And, and of course, that's what I'm immersed in too. But I do have uh, book one of the Glenmore Park series just into uh, chapter two of that where the different people that investigated the grizzly uh, discovery by the pond have the weekend to have those thoughts interrupt their thinking and and interrupt their lives they just can't get away from the work and uh, that's just chapter two so nice not and, and that's the glenmore series but i will Get into that next after we finish Zoe. I, you can talk about both. It, it makes no difference to me. I, I'm more familiar with Zoe. But I'd like the, if you could, talk about the interplay between the psychologist who is not an FBI, but attached to the FBI. And she has sort of a partner in, at her work, and that's uh, Tatum. So if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit, I'd, I'd appreciate hearing more on this. Because it's a central part. Their interaction is a central part. Of the books, as I, I can tell, yeah. So, yeah, I, Zoe is a very flawed character. I get readers uh, writing to me uh, a lot, asking me, when will I reveal the fact that she's actually on the spectrum? I can say right now that it's not something that's going to be revealed. I'm not us. I can't really diagnose a character, but Zoe does have her flaws, and she might be on the spectrum. It's not like going to be a huge reveal. She has issues with emotions, and it might have to do something with her childhood experiences as well. But And obviously, she couldn't be an FBI agent due to those issues. And I kind of wanted to make this uh, flawed character and give her like a, a strong anchor as an actual FBI agent and all and have their interaction like this push and pull between their different ways of acting, of feeling emotionally. And Tatum is a bit more like he's more emotional, but he he can sort of stop playing by the rules. Zoe is more of a follow the rules person, but but she's also very strict and emotionally uh, disconnected a lot of the time. I wanted this constant push and pull between the characters, and I also wanted her to always feel like an outsider. So that's why I created this this duo, this uh, just for this endless tense interaction. And obviously, they become very close, and it's part of the like the allure of the series to show how they kind of get closer and closer. In a killer's mind, they start out pretty much hating each other after a few chapters <laughs> and then you i kind of push them very softly towards each other 
and they have these blowouts where they fight over things one of them or the other says, and they kind of take them out of proportion. And I really enjoy the tension. That's how I created the duo. And, and it shows some real nice writing chops, too. I mean, you, this was, well, again, you also had a chance with the, the Glenmore series to, to get better at your craft. And let's say, I don't know very many writers that do not somehow get better at their craft. Oh, and, yeah. And if they don't, shame on them. They think that they can just <laughs> mail it in. Their readers will let them know very quickly. But yeah, I, I found it to be a nice interplay between the two of them. And I liked the way, I liked it so much in, in the darkness that I want to go back and see what the character arc of the guys were in their first one, which is Killer's Mind. And so, but you also have other real, realistic detectives, I guess, and your Park series. If you could help me with that, yeah. I'd appreciate that. Yeah. So, so Glenmore Park has basically the detective squad has four detectives and they work in two pairs. So we have Mitchell Lani, who is a sort of a young, handsome detective with a bit like also very emotional. Uh, he, at some point in Spider's Web, actually works with Zoe to track the serial killer. His uh, partner is uh, Jacob, who is like this experienced, burly detective. And uh, But he's a bit, uh, he has technologic technological difficulties and because the law enforcement and law invest and the investigation methods have advanced a lot he feels sometimes like he was left behind he can't handle the technology so he works with Mitchell Mitchell is like the technology guy and Jacob is is more of a people's person and then I have uh Hannah Shore which is uh sort of she's an like the Jewish woman who is who is part of the she's very intense she's she's very similar to Zoe in her in her I don't know the way she feels in her the way she interacts with people she's very intense she's she pushes forwards all with all the time and so on and she has a partner who is very mellow and he's called Bernard who is pretty much based on me like he's a family guy. He has three kids who drive him insane and he can't get enough sleep. And these four uh, characters work together to crack cases. And each Glenmore Park uh, book has, like, the first one has a serial killer. The second one just has two murders and each duo investigates one. And the third has a kidnapping case with all detectives working on the kidnapping case. So that's the Glenmore Park series. And then you wanted to spin off uh, Zoe because you got a lot of positive feedback from her. Right. And, and I'm sure that you probably had some ideas ahead that how you could play with that, where it could go. That was your first one. Can you tell us a little bit right. about A Killer's Mind? Yeah. Part of the reason I wanted to write Zoe uh, was I wanted a serial killer, but also, like you said, like our writing improves. So Glenmore Park, it has a certain structure, which I loved. In It's like a mystery with a lot of humor in it, but the pacing wasn't perfect. And I wanted to create a series in which the pacing is like top-notch. It's, it feels like completely smooth. So, so I, and a serial killer, like this is a bit of a how the sausage is made thing. A serial killer gives you that pacing for free because a serial killer always has another victim 
that he's about to kill. He's, he will always have another victim. So there's always tension and he always, you don't get thrillers in which the investigators, investigators like profile the killer and say, oh yeah, he's slowing down now. We have like lots of time. <laughs> no, he always, he's always, it's always like he's accelerating. It's getting more serious. So, so a serial killer just give you, gives you all that pacing stuff for free. And I wanted to see if I can, if I have a serial killer giving me this amazing uh, blueprint, if I can create a really smooth pace-wise book. And yeah, it worked really well. So, so a killer's mind. I I got the idea when I was I was in my thirtieth. It was my anniversary with my wife. We went to a hotel, and we were we were like eating breakfast one day, and I and she was talking about something uh, like the kids or something, and I suddenly said, "Well, I can so... call you right here." When I interrupt <laughs> a conversation about our children's education by asking her if she thinks an embalmed body would be flexible enough to pose. She does not flinch or search for a good divorce lawyer. Instead, she brainstorms with, we create a better story together. Then we resume talking about our children's education. Yeah, I had, exactly. it, I, I had this in front of me and I was <laughs> laughing my butt off when I saw that. That was wonderful. And you said that the book was uh, plotted during your vacation and she and you yeah. spent much of your time talking about serial killers. That, that must have been a great conversation for other diners to overhear in the restaurants. <laughs> I, I actually have a scene in A Killer's Minds which is kind of based on that breakfast in which I, when I am excited, I kind of talk aloud. And then <laughs> and she was looking around her and, and saying, okay, just lower your voice. And I have the same scene with Zoe like talking excitedly and Tatum telling her, okay, but, but maybe not here. Maybe we can talk somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Now, is it by design that Zoe's boss... Is, am I right that the last name is Mancuso? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But then you also say in your acknowledgments, and this is a really good acknowledgement. I really like this a lot because it struck right to the heart of what I am, am struggling. I mean, if it's the one thing that's most elusive to me, it's this, what, she's, what I'm going to quote now. Christine Mancuso provided invaluable comments that helped shape this novel to be sharper and more engaging. She kept telling me to let the readers feel as if they were really experiencing the events of the books from the character's eyes. She always points out the sections where I failed to do so, just like that. And then you say, I'm saying, one day I'll learn. And that's so important. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can see, just from my brief read, difference between uh, Glenmore Park and the Zoe, is that you were really starting to take her to heart with that. I could see a lot more of the development. With Glenmore Park, it, it hadn't, it was more about police, crime fiction, police procedural, obviously. But there were some good action scenes and kept wanting to turn the page. With Zoe, it clearly, as you said, the pacing was supplied to you by, by the incessant need of the serial killers to do the things that they do. So, yeah, it was really nice. But I was it by, did you give Zoe's boss uh, the same name as uh, Christine on purpose? Yeah, yeah, she's uh, Christine Mancuso is is also a character that appeared on Spider's Web with Zoe back there. She wasn't the chief of the BAU yet. She was like an FBI, I don't know, FBI person in contact with the police and she was working with Zoe and and she was like I gave her Christine's name as a for all her good work with me and all the like all her help in helping me hone my writing and make it 
Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you're paying homage to uh, her. And I, I went back to In the Darkness because I'm flipping between the Kindle and a, and a soft copy right of me. And I said, that's the same name. How can this FBI supervisor be so, so erudite when it comes to writing characters? And I said, oh, you dummy. He just took, took her name and, and gave her a prop, gave her some respect. Uh, uh, so anyhow, yeah, I really liked it. And I think that what I quoted from you, from your acknowledgments, are just so nice. Uh, I think that you really realize that it takes a lot of people it takes a village. It takes yeah. a village to grow a book. It really yeah. does. And anybody, and I think there's, and this is a cautionary tale to any independence. If you think that um, beta reader or two, and then somebody that had a master's in fine arts that the stickler about grammar are going to be your developmental and content editors and your copy editor and your proofreader, it's going to look that way. It's going to definitely look that way. I mean, I got to tell you, I love my beta readers. They're the greatest people in the world. They help me out immensely, both by helping act as a barometer for whether or not I'm really going in the right direction or not. But then when I get my uh, developmental editor assessment or the notes, the difference is really clear. I mean, my beta readers are wonderful people. They don't have the chops that professional editors do. And I get to see the, I get to see my rough draft through a developmental editor's eyes. And I say, wow, that's really, that's really insightful. I couldn't see the forest from the trees. And therefore, uh, I've got some work to do. And I'll tell you, I tell all of my editors, and I don't know if you, you have very, various editors from project to project, but I tell my editors that I am bringing you my coal. And you're going to help me polish it up to become diamond. And I've always felt that way. I'm never, no, I shouldn't say never, ever, but I'm never. I never have an ego about my rough drafts because this is my idea of what I think it should sound like and look like. But I know that with help, I can make it that much better. And shame on me if I don't take the advice and do the best I can. I feel like I'm given a chance to uh, read. It's like I'm turning my school paper back in again. And this time I have the answers. You know yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I got some things just wrong, just playing like you said, like a test. And okay, they'll fix that. They'll tell me what I got wrong, and then I'll be able to do it right. It's exactly that. Yeah, and you give a lot of kudos to your uh, Brian Quartermouse. And then I was on a panel with Brian, by the way, out at at Baushukan. I never, I'll, I'll, well, I'll connect with him again, and I'll say, hey, Brian, I just uh, interviewed Mike uh, Homer. And I'll just reacquaint myself with him again. We had a nice uh, panel. but And then you have other people that you've mentioned that did your edits, and Jessica Tribble and Stephanie Chow. These are people that you're giving acknowledgments to. Oh, and Elaine Morgan. And I can tell that they're heartfelt, and that you really care about it, because you know that it's you got the bones of the book. You got a good story. You got a good plot. And you've got decent characters. And they're going to help you make it make these characters add to the story much more. And I think that by you giving them the kind of acknowledgements that you are in your books, you're really letting letting people know that this wasn't a solo, way, that this was... Yeah, yeah, it's really not. It's really not. That, like the, the distance between my first draft 
which I give to my to Christine and my wife to read. And the draft after Stephanie Chow finished with it, and obviously before that there was like my developmental editor and Jessica and everyone else. The distance is vast. Like most of the words that were in the first draft aren't there anymore. <laughs> oh boy, and uh, and I think that you can take some real solace in the fact that when you're working with somebody and they're pushing you to be better and you it's almost like you want to form for them so that that you're paying attention to the lessons that you're learning and when you get that feedback that hey that's better than i expected meaning from Brian or Stephanie or Lane you know that's great that's great feedback and i think that when i look at some of my earlier chapters and i look at how i rewrote them thanks to really good advice from my, excuse me, my editors, I can see the difference. And I say, yeah, that's right. That's so much better. And then after a while, you can sort of hear their voice in your head when you write. And so you get things right the first time. They can focus on other stuff and it just gets better and better. Yeah. My my copy editor had her put her foot down the other day, two couple months ago, and she sent me her cheat sheets for dialogue tags and the way to properly uh, do quotes and numbers and things. And she gave me all her cheat sheets. She said, John, you just have to start you know, paying more attention to this. I can tell you about it. I can tell you about it, but here it is. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now I have that with me when I'm doing my rough draft. And if I have a question about whether the comma is within the quote or if it's a, a period, I, I have my cheat sheet there. But you know, I'm trying to, to learn from my copy editor so that I don't have to waste her time going over what, what is simple grammar. I kept telling her that I must have been asleep that month in third grade when they had the basics of uh, punctuation for quotation marks and uh, dialogue. So anyway, so you've, you have the Glenmore Park series. You have Zoe. You got another book coming out. You had another book yeah. after In the Darkness, and you have a fourth plan too. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I have a new series coming up. Okay. Yeah, it's a new series. I'm not done with Zoe. I get a lot of concerned readers. They're like, okay, so so I don't know, is there going to be a book for? So I'm not done with Zoe. I have two more books planned, but I'm taking a short break because I, because I decided to start a new series about a hostage negotiator called Abby. And uh, the first book is called Deadly Influence. And it's just about there's this Can't Abby. Have any... yeah, yeah, I'm trying to like so so Abby had a very she had a rough childhood with a person who had a very twisted influence on her life and the life of others. And now as she and now as a grown up she meets something uh similar and a friend uh, like a childhood friend, they both came from the same background, has her son kidnapped by a person who's under the influence uh, of another twisted mind. So so it's all a bit like convoluted people influencing other people, and everything is about how Abby tries to handle it all while staying professional and, of course, handling the influence of her own past on, her, on the way she's handling the, the case. Are you uh, moving away from, like, police procedural or fast-paced thriller to more of a psychological thriller with the series? So actually, it's pretty much a similar pacing. It's, it, and it's 
sort of a similar this one has the same uh, beats as as other mysteries it's a lot it's kind of similar and then the next two books that I'm about to write will be a bit faster they'll be more thriller oriented but it's still about there's a case there's the mystery that has to be cracked and the what sh- what really changes in these books is there's a lot more about interaction between Abby, who is the hostage negotiator, and the various antagonists. So, so there's a lot about that, about influencing them when she talks, about like small things she does to make the interview go this way or the other. So that's what's different. But the other, the rest is a bit similar to what I did in uh, my previous books. Okay. Well, that's mm-hmm. great. I'm glad to hear that. And you're not done with Zoe yet, so thank you. No. Appreciate that. And I, I'm not going to give any spoilers away. So I, I really thoroughly enjoyed your signed copy of In the Dark so much that I went back and start with Killer's Mind so I could get a, a better, better sense for character arc. And I'll do that with a writer. If I'm in mid-series, I'll stop 50 pages in and go back to the beginning. I, had, I, I did this with Mike Corita. Mike was writing. I, I picked up one of his series, and I, I was I don't know how many books into it. I said, "Nope, got to start. Got to start at the beginning again." <laughs> yeah, I do. So. do you? so, is there any particular writers that you like to pay homage to as as being influential? You already mentioned Ed McBain, so I'm so Ed McBain is the big one. Okay, his Michael Connolly is the writer that I learned how to. I get a lot of reviews praising my books for uh, not seeing. Uh, not anticipating who the killer was, mm-hmm. not solving the who done it. That they say, I always know who done it, but this time I was like, he, I was completely surprised. And I learned that from Michael Connolly's books. He can create amazing red herrings. I, I see him as the master of red herrings. So that's who I learned that from. And as far as beautiful writing goes, I crave to be like Tana French. So she's my, there I feel like I'll never be good enough, but say she's a 10, I can be, I don't know, a seven maybe. Okay, <laughs> yeah. And those are nice ambitions to reach for, right? And you're not intimidated by it. That's what I'm hearing, that you're not intimidated by great writing. It's something that you can aspire to. I mean, yeah. I can be perfectly honest with you, Mike. When I read really great writing, I, I just, I love it, of course. But then I said, oh, I'm such a miserable creature. And and then I say, well, I can get better. Exactly. I, I can learn and I can listen to my editors and I can do what they tell me to do and I can get better. But I, I think that a lot of people feel that uh, they have, and that's called the imposter syndrome, where they think that, how could I possibly write like Connolly or Tana French? Well, Connolly writes like Connolly because he wrote a million words before he, he got to be that guy, he was a beat writer for a for a ma- newspapers, working the crime beat, and he wrote a lot. I mean, you look at look at a lot of writers that they did, they weren't one hit wonders starting out. They they had to learn their craft just like we did. One had to put their pants on one leg at a time. And that's the word I'm looking. For. I think you're going to agree with me is that I'm not intimidated by it. I just know that there's a process. And it's not going to come overnight. Yeah, there's time. a process. I keep feeling I'm learning. And I also, I, I feel like, I really do feel like I'll never write as good as Tana French does, but that's fine because she writes like, her writing is so top-notch 
that I really feel if I just aspire to that, I can create, write really good books and it's still fine. I don't aspire to be like the best writer in the world. <laughs> I am fine with just creating great books that people love. And I don't need... I will sit down with uh, a paperback that I keep on my desk and it's from Lawrence Block and it's Eight Million Ways to Die. And a fellow by the name of Stephen King said, it's really a hell of a book. I nice of you to say yeah. that. But what I'll do is I'll sit with Lawrence for 10 or 15 minutes while my computer is getting ready, while the coffee is brewing, whatever's going on in those preparatory times. And I just like to get my head into good writing and say, okay, now it's up to me not to just put 2,000 words into the machine today. It's to, to put the best 2,000 words that follow what I just wrote, and it's going to become the, the basis of what I'm going to write next. And I, I find that if I take a little bit of inspiration from my heroes before I sit down, that I'm not intimidated by it, but it's a striving to live up to what my predecessors have done and have done so well. And got to admit, they've learned their craft just as we are learning ours. It's one book yeah, at a time sure. and getting better and better. So, Mike, how can people reach you? Oh, they can email me. So they can email me at... Um... So it's uh, Mike at S-T-R-A-N-G-E-R-E-A-L-M.com. Mike at strangerealm.com. That's right. And also they can ping me on Facebook. Sometimes it takes me a bit, uh, like the just the Mike Omer. I have a Mike Omer page, and they can ping me there. Sometimes. It takes me a little bit of time to respond because the Facebook notifications being what they are, but I usually uh, respond at the end. So those are the two best ways to, to reach me. And, yeah. and hopefully one day when it is safe, which gatherings, yeah. we might like be, we did. yes, maybe uh, <laughs> International Thriller Fest or Bowser Khan, and yeah. we can do that again. I, I really appreciate the time. I mean, you were nice enough to sign a book for me. and. When I finished it, I said, no, Mike has to come on. That's all there is to it. And I'm so grateful that you said yes. And this was a wonderful conversation about the journey and not giving up the journey and craft and knowing that it doesn't all have to come out of your head, that you can get some help and uh, it can make things better if you listen as well as speak. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. So I thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was really delightful. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Rory McMahon. Rory has had a distinguished career for over 30 years as a legal investigator, owner of McMahon & Associates Detective Division in Fort Lauderdale, Florida since 2001. He's an educator, adjunct professor, and department chair of private investigative services program for seven years at a private college in Fort Lauderdale, offering an associate's degree with a major in private investigations. He has conducted seminars, training sessions, and spoken at professional association conferences throughout the United States for the past 20 years. He authored The Guide to Professional Investigation, published 
May of 2020, Fraud Investigation, 3rd Edition, 2018, and the Practical Handbook for Professional Investigators, 3rd Edition, CRC Press, 2013. Prior to becoming a licensed private investigator, Rory was, a, was in federal law enforcement for 12 years. He owns a company, Investigation Education Consultants, that's EIC, and he's proud to announce the creation of his online investigation training course, which is the subject of this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com. J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.